Hey, thanks for joining us today here at South Suburban Christian Church. However you're joining us, whether it's at southsuburban.online.church or, or if you're watching this uh, on youtube.com uh, slash southsuburbanchristianchurch or on SoundCloud where you might have access this uh, at our website, southsuburban.com. Uh, if you picked us up on uh, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, thank you for joining us today. We're in our uh, uh, final uh, message, our, our, our third message in our series, uh, Advent for Dummies, as we are preparing to go into the season of Advent. And uh, today, as we, uh, uh, as we focus on our final theme, uh, Jesus, a king like David, uh, I want to uh, encourage us to turn to Isaiah, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. Uh, the longest uh, uh, pr prophetic book in your Old Testament, um, and look at chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, we're going to be reading uh, beginning in verse 6, uh, so if you have your Bible or if you've got your phone open or your Version Bible app and you're at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we're only going to be looking at those two verses, 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and his understanding to it. Amen. You know, one of the principal founders of the Christian church movement, of which South Suburban Christian Church is a part, was a Presbyterian minister named Alexander Campbell. In one of his quintessential books, entitled The Christian System, uh, Campbell writes, and here's the quote, A monarchy would always be the best government, the most efficient and the most dignified, provided only that the crown was placed on the wisest head and the scepter wielded by the purest hands. Pastor Jeff Gill is a great friend of mine, uh, and uh, he also has spent a great deal of his life uh, studying church history and uh, he, he and I were talking recently, and he cited this as an example of Alexander Campbell's dry sense of humor. And I couldn't agree with Pastor Gilmore. In principle, the monarchy is a clean, neat, and efficient way uh, to run a nation-state. But it requires unfailing wisdom and the purest heart. And I guess that's the rub, isn't it? Because we Christians, we would suggest that the human race is infected by an insidious virus known as depravity or sin. It is the virus that lurks among all of us. And no one, not a single person on the planet, is safe from its infection of selfishness, of greed, and for a hunger for power. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, beginning in verses uh, 14 through verse 20, Moses, which by the way was that same prelude that we read several weeks ago when, 
uh, we were looking at Jesus, a prophet like Moses. The, that same sermon where Moses talks about how someone will come to be a prophet like him, just prior to that, he talks about what is uh, essential for a king. In that interaction uh, between Moses and the people of God, Moses says that the day will come when you will have a king over you. And here's what you should be looking for. Somebody who doesn't have many horses, who doesn't have many wives, is not prone to silver and gold, and that he should write out the law of the Lord with his own hands and read it over and over and over again the rest of his life. Now, I know that those things may sound kind of strange to us, but there are reasons that Moses gives for each of those guidelines. I'm not going to address it now, but I, am, I have highlighted it just briefly in our notes, which you can pick up on our YouVersion Bible app as well for this message. By the time the Jews had conquered the Promised Land, the Jewish nation, the Hebrews, are first ruled by God. They don't have a monarch. And whenever the tribes encountered difficult times or were invaded or were in need of some sort of centralized leadership, God would raise up someone uh, that they called a judge. Uh, a judge like Deborah, who was a woman of great valor who led the people of Israel to defeat their invaders. Or Gideon, who defeated the Midianite army with only 300 soldiers. Now, there were only about maybe a dozen, depending on how you count them, maybe a dozen or so judges who led the people of, of Israel over a course of anywhere between 300 and 400 years. Most scholars say 325 to 350 years. The last judge, uh, depending on how you count them, the last judge was uh, Samuel. You may have heard of him before. Samuel was a member of the tribe of Levi, which means he was uh, authorized and qualified to make sacrifices. He was a prophet, but he also was a kingmaker. It was uh, through Samuel that God first anointed Saul to be the first king of Israel. Now, Saul was a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And as you probably know, Saul failed miserably at being a king mainly because of his arrogance and his impatience, but we'll save that for another sermon, maybe even another series. Next, Samuel anointed David. David, a member of the tribe of Judah, and it was David, this small shepherd boy who was pretty good with a slingshot, who became the next king of Israel. David really becomes the central figure in Jewish history. It's under David's reign that he unites all of the 12 tribes of Israel, which up until that point Saul wasn't able to accomplish, and most of the time the tribes would even war among themselves. It would be David who would subdue a people called the Jebusites and, uh, and Jerusalem, their capital city, and David would take over Jerusalem and make it his capital city. As a matter of fact, Jerusalem from that moment on, even up until today, would be alternately called Jerusalem or the city of David. He defeated the Philistines, which were a constant aggressor and irritant to the Hebrew people. Now, the Philistines were the folks that lived over on the coast of Israel near the Mediterranean Sea. And, uh, and, and, and as David sought to subdue them, he also was able to expand the kingdom from the size of basically what Israel is today, to include all of the land, all the way to the northeast of the, to the Euphrates River, 
all the way down to the great river in Egypt, which we assume to be the Nile. Now, to put that into perspective, under David's reign, he controlled the area of land that is today Iraq, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Israel, as well as portions of Egypt. In Genesis 15, verses 18 through 21, I'm only going to quote to you the verse 18, what David is essentially doing is fulfilling the promise that God had made to Abraham. Here's what God says to Abraham in Genesis 15, 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give you this land from the river of the Egypt, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. Under David, that promise to Abram had been fulfilled by God. Now, from a spiritual perspective, if we look at David's reign from a spiritual perspective, we could say, and I think most scholars have said, that David, by establishing a centralized government, establishes justice. David defeats the enemy, the Philistines. And David establishes righteousness a righteous nation now in this series advent for dummies we've been exploring the meaning of advent which means uh, the arrival or to come we've talked about how this season an ancient season which goes all the way back to the 200s the third century of the church was really intended not so much to celebrate the birth of jesus but to celebrate the incarnation of god that is is that god clothed himself with flesh and came to dwell among us emmanuel as the Gospel of Matthew says, which means God with us. And in preparing to celebrate Christ's first coming, his first advent in Bethlehem, this season is also a time to celebrate, to prepare for his second coming, his return. During the season, I know that uh, we get excited about all of the things that are festive and new and bright. One of the interesting things about Advent that most folks don't know is it is really the Christian New Year. Now, that may be new to a lot of you. Uh, You've probably heard of the Jewish New Year. You've probably heard of the Chinese New Year. You may have even heard of the Pagan New Year. You probably celebrate it every year. The Pagan New Year, celebrating the god Janus on January 1st. Yes, uh, as a culture, we celebrate the Pagan New Year. But there's also a Christian New Year. And it begins the first Sunday of Advent. Also on Advent, as we are looking to celebrating Christmas in our culture, we start surrounding ourselves with with festive lights, with with colors of of red and green and white uh, as they try to breed some joy into our life as the days seem to get shorter, as the sun sets quicker and rises later each day. And even though for many of us, red, green, and white all seem to be the color of the season, the actual color of Advent is the color purple. Now, purple is a color that was anciently uh, related to, well, first of all, uh, repentance, confession. Makes sense, since we're preparing for the return of Christ. But the second important aspect of this color is that purple is the color of royalty, the color of are you ready? Of a king. During this season, we've been looking at the three major offices God uses to redeem the people uh, in the Old Testament, the office of prophet, the office of priest, and the office of king, and how Jesus, as revealed in God's word, fulfills all of these offices. And yet he's greater than those to whom he is compared. 
Christ is a prophet like Moses, a priest like Melchizedek, and a king like David. And yet in all three of these, we have also seen within Scripture that not only does Jesus fulfill them, but he blows them out of the water. For he's greater than Moses, he's greater than Melchizedek, and yes, he is even greater than David. Now earlier, I shared with you the spiritual implications of David's reign as king of Israel. That is, is that he established justice, that he defeated the enemy, and he made the nation of Israel a righteous nation. You know, all of those things are historically true. And every Christian uh, scholar, historic, his, his, historian, theologian will agree that those are the hallmarks of David's reign. They're affirmed also right here in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, which incidentally is read almost every year in the season of Advent and Christmas. And so how is Jesus like a king like David? Well, point one, like David, Jesus establishes justice. The prophet Isaiah writes, and the government shall be upon his shoulders with justice, in verse 7. Now, in our democratic republic, known as the United States of America, we generally understand four kinds of justice in our culture. The first is distributive justice, or economic justice, which means basically that assets are, are distributed fairly, that people get what they earn, etc., etc. The second is procedural justice, or fair process, that everybody uh, follows the same process, follows the same laws, no matter whether they're wealthy or poor or, or important or, or not as important in the culture. The third is retributive justice. Uh, retributive justice, or the idea that people deserve to be treated, or listen, that people deserve to be treated the way they have treated others. Now, now pay attention to that. We'll come back to it later. Uh, this justice really informs our understanding of criminal law and fair punishment. And the final view of justice in our culture is restorative justice. That means uh, we not only seek to heal the wounds of the victim, but we also seek to transform the offender into a law-abiding citizen. Now, from the time of Socrates, who died somewhere around the year 400 B.C., philosophers and theologians have struggled with what justice is. The ancient Greeks understood justice essentially as harmony. That is, as everyone receives their due, and the government ought to govern rightly. By the time of St. Augustine, a Christian theologian who incidentally lived in 400 A.D., in his work, the book, The City of God, he sees justice as this. Justice is to love serving God only and therefore ruling well all else. Augustine obviously was influenced by Scripture and the teaching of the apostles. And in Scripture and in the Christian tradition, justice is always relational. That is, people live in right relationship with God and therefore with one another and with creation, incidentally. As God is just and loving, we too are called to live justly and to love. Many Christian thinkers actually have suggested that the true justice in a Christian understanding is a return to the original created order of the Garden of Eden, an equality with one another and a deep personal relationship, literally being friends with God. 
For King David, this was established as he found at Jerusalem as the seat of government. But in King Jesus' kingdom, it's an awareness that we are all due judgment. But God, in His mercy, took upon Himself our punishment and restored us to full relationship with God. That is, God takes that modern definition of justice that I mentioned earlier. Remember, I asked you to pay attention. It's not so much that we treat people the way they treat others, but we treat others as we would want them to treat us. The golden rule. Regardless of how they've treated us. Regardless of how they've hurt us. We treat them the way we would want to be treated. It's a different take on justice, isn't it? Point two, Jesus has defeated the enemy. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, Isaiah writes, On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. Well, like King David, who finally is the one who defeated the Philistines, now, you have to understand that the Hebrew people had been fighting with the Philistines for almost a thousand years. And most recently, at least for the preceding three to four hundred years before David becomes king, the Philistines had been a constant enemy on and off with the Hebrew people. King Jesus, who is like David, but greater than David, defeats our enemy. Sin, death, and he does it through his crucifixion and his resurrection. Way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, after the serpent had led Adam and Eve into rebellion against God, God declares to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. If you have a King James Version, it might say something like this, You shall bruise his heel, he shall crush your head. Again, in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, as Peter is preaching to the Gentiles in Caesarea, he says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And one of my favorites, from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power to death, that is, the devil, and deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. As our New Testament comes to its great and victorious conclusion in the book of Revelation, in chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years was ended. And then again in verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. You know, for most of us, death is our biggest fear, isn't it? Horror movies, war movies, the feelings we get when we go off into uncharted lands or 
unknowns in our life, they all harbor the shadow of death. Most of what we do is our effort to cheat death, isn't it? To avoid death. And one of the things about all of those movies that talk about these things that, that cause that emotion of fear and anxiety to come up in us because of death's power are really ended too neatly. They either begin with a new beginning or survival. I wonder if sometimes we view Jesus' resurrection the same way. It's not without historical precedence. As a matter of fact, the whole idea of Jesus being raised again from the dead was such a strange ending to the story that in the time of Jesus and the apostles, many groups uh, sought to explain that event differently. The Romans said that Jesus was dead and he stayed dead, but the disciples stole and hid his body. Other groups of people said Jesus took an unknown sedative that only mimicked death, but he never really died. Some groups, some other major religions say that God miraculously took Jesus off of the cross before he died and replaced him with someone else who did. How would you like to be that someone else? Now you'll notice, especially in those last two, that all of these explanations of what happened Jesus avoids death. He doesn't conquer death. He avoids it. But we Christians are very clear. Jesus died. His heart stopped. He stopped breathing. He was dead. He was laid in a tomb. As a matter of fact, some of the early creeds of the church say that Jesus, in spiritual form, descended to the dead to free the saints, like in Hebrews chapter 12, who had lived by faith in the centuries before. That particular phrase in the creed is based on Ephesians chapter 4, verse 9, which reads, In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? But listen, avoiding death is not what Christ came to do. He came to plow through it, to receive it, to grab death by its throat and make it submit to Him. It's in His resurrection that He throws off the chains of death. And without His bodily death, there can be no bodily resurrection. It was death that was born through human sin, our rebellion, and it is Christ being raised from the dead through which that curse is broken. Like him, you and I will pass through physical death. And at the last days, our bodies, like Christ's, will be raised again, glorified to an eternal life. I like it the way Sam Alberry, a relatively famous Christian writer and speaker, says. Uh, he says it this way, As we grasp the significance of death, we can start to see the significance of resurrection. Raising Jesus from the dead was not an arbitrary stunt by God the Father. It wasn't just a mega miracle to prove He's still there and still bigger, although that's true. No, the resurrection has meaning. The resurrection is the outworking and proof of our salvation because death is the outworking and proof of our sin. Sin has been conquered. Only the resurrection proves that our sins have been fully dealt with. That death is no longer our destination, but a gateway to perfect, endless life. By dying, 
and rising for us, the Son has closed the deal. And raising Him from the dead, the Father has signed for it. Man, I love the way he says that. Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Which leads us to our final point, point three. Jesus has made us righteous. Isaiah concludes this section at the latter part of verse 7, and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Now, in the original language of the Old Testament, the language of Hebrew, the word righteousness normally carries a meaning of integrity. In the Greek, the meaning is legitimacy. That is, Christ's righteousness, His integrity, becomes our own. In the New Testament, Christ's legitimacy as the Son of God is given to us. And we too become legitimate daughters and sons of God. Like David, who made Israel a legitimate nation among the other nations, and even surpassing some of those nations, bringing his influence over the known world from the the, uh, river Euphrates all the way down uh, to Egypt. Jesus also reaches his arms out from the cross and enfolds all of creation and pulls us into the very heart of God. We're legit now. We are co-heirs with Christ because he began calling us to himself, continues to call us to himself, And at his second advent, his return will come to establish fully his kingdom forever and ever. Advent. Christ's return. In a 2009 Pew Research survey, 78% of Christians believed uh, that Christ would indeed come again. Now, what's stunning about that statistic is 20% of Christians don't believe that Jesus will come again. There's this statement that's called the Great Memorial Acclamation. It's been a part of the church's celebration of the Lord's Supper, we definitely know, since the 300s. It goes like this. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Now, I don't know about you, but I think after 2020, many of us might believe that Christ will come any day now. May it be so. But whether it does or whether it doesn't, next week, we celebrate the Christian New Year. We begin the season of Advent. Here's what I want to invite you to do. Celebrate the arrival of Jesus, who was a prophet like Moses, a priest like Melchizedek, and a king like David, and yet even greater. And may the same joy and anticipation that you have for Christmas morning, preparing to open the gifts that are under the tree, may that same joyful anticipation be yours as well when you think about his second advent, his coming again, the return of Jesus Christ. Are you ready?
If you haven't made Jesus Christ Lord of your life, would you do that today? Answer yes to this question. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and do you accept him as Lord and Savior? If you've said yes to that question, would you click on the button if you're on our online.church platform to let us know that you've received him? If you're listening or joining us on one of our other platforms, would you send us an email, office at southsuburban.com? We'd like to connect with you. We'd like to be in relationship with you, that we can celebrate together and walk together, looking forward to that great day of Christ's return. Would you pray with me? Merciful God, glorious God, thank you for sending to us Jesus, a prophet like Moses, a priest like Melchizedek, and a king like David. Lord, may we take advantage of this season to prepare ourselves, not only to celebrate his first coming as a babe in Bethlehem, but his second coming as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In Jesus' name, amen.